right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to season two of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories from the tippity-top. I'd like to thank you all for being super understanding of my need to take a quick hiatus. I hope you all had a great time this summer doing all of the fun activities and hanging out. I can say that my dance card was certainly super full between birthdays and concerts and high school reunions. I was healing my voice. I know it doesn't really sound like it because it's now back to school. And so now I'm recovering from the back to school crud, AKA the September epidemic. Oh my goodness. I've also consumed quite a bit of true crime. All for you. I've been taking it in. I have. Why? Because I love you. And because season two, let's start with some fresh stuff, right? So with that being said, I want to thank you all for continuing to spread the what had happened word to everyone. I super appreciate your support and listenership. I swear you guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know what's up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. Welcome back, Wisconsin, Nevada, Oregon. I see you out there, Louisiana. What's good with you, Connecticut? It's also so wonderful to see you returning Australia, Iceland, Nigeria, and Uruguay. Hey. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group. Follow all of the social accounts that I will get back to managing much better. That can always be found in the description box below, as well as all of my references per the usual. So this is a very long script because... I've been gone for a while. I missed you. And so, pretty much just going to get into it. Last episode of season one, I discussed serial rapist and killer Bobby Joe Long, who terrorized Florida, sexually assaulting and murdering at least 10 women in, Flo- in Florida in 1984. For our season two premiere episode, I wanted to tell you a story that rattled me when it unfolded in 1997. I understand I was 15, but shit can still shake you even when you're a kid. (coughs) Pardon me. Today I'll be telling you what had happened when Jeremy crossed paths with Sharice. Warning, super fucking graphic content. I just cursed off the top. Do not let your children listen to this episode. I repeat, do not let your children listen to this episode. I'm going to add an echo. Don't do it. it. Okay. John and Winnie were mid-20s transplants from New Jersey and Chicago when their paths crossed as neighbors on Manhattan Beach in 1968. By 1970, the 26-year-old couple were married. 
They'd always planned on having a blended family, which would consist of a biological child and adopt and and an adopted child. Eager to begin building their family, John and Winnie began the years-long process of trying to adopt a child. Particularly, they wanted to adopt a child who was more difficult to place with the family. In the midst of trying to adopt, six years into the couple's marriage, they gave birth to a daughter they named Heather. Four years later, in 1980, the Strohmeyer family was completed when an adoption counselor showed the young couple a photo of an 18-month-old baby boy named Gerald Paul, or Jerbear, as his loving foster parents referred to him. While the foster parents were lovely people who wanted to make the toddler their son permanently, they were considered too old to adopt the baby. John and Winnie fell in love immediately with the beautiful child and adopted him, renaming him Jeremy Joseph, so they could still affectionately call their son Jer. The Strohmeyers and Jeremy's foster family remained close, celebrating Thanksgivings together through the years and sharing in the growing boys' milestones in life. John and Winnie were very open with their son, who knew he was adopted. Like many adopted children, there was a void within Jeremy. As a child, he would vocalize wanting to find his birth mother, as he surmised she must be sad and lonely without them. So, like, yo, can she come with us on holiday? At the time of Jeremy's adoption, there was no information disclosed about his birth parents. John and Winnie had no idea what type of mental health or addiction issues their son's biological parents suffered from. While the couple didn't care where their perfect little boy came from, it wouldn't be until nearly 20 years that they would learn the details of Jeremy's biological background. A brief summary breakdown is that Jeremy's birth mother was a teenager from a well-to-do family. She suffered from mental health issues as well as substance abuse issues. She was committed scores for her psychological issues, which included schizophrenia and OCD. She also had a form of alcoholism that they classified, and I was like, oh. I didn't put that in there, but that's there. Okay, also, real quick, a lot of the information came from a 1998 LA Times article because they did such an in-depth job of getting the background information that is very hard to come by. So, shout out to the LA Times. So, (coughs) excuse me. They were the ones who gave me all of this information. She gave birth to two to she gave birth to three boys, the oldest, Jeremy's half brother, and the youngest, Jeremy's whole brother. They were both adopted. The youngest of the two other brothers suffered from behavioral issues in his youth. At the time that she gave birth to Jeremy, She'd been confined to a psychiatric ward of the county hospital. After approximately 70 commitments to psychiatric care 
In the late 80s, she was deemed unable to care for herself and was committed for the better part of a decade by the late 90s. Jeremy's biological father spent most of his time in and out of California correctional facilities for varied drug-related offenses. While Jeremy's biological family endured a multitude of issues, it seemed that the tot escaped unscathed and thrived as a Strohmeyer. John and Winnie worked extremely hard to provide their children with a great life, some would call charmed. As a family, they enjoyed vacations and travel. They lived in a lovely home that was cared for by a housekeeper. They owned a four-seater single-engine plane and four cars. When Heather began to take uh, a serious interest in show riding, John and Winnie joked that they were horse poor. <laughs> as a child, Jeremy was described as being funny, witty, intelligent, and charismatic. Jeremy dreamed of attending the Air Force Academy or West Point and excelled in school. Overall, John and Winnie were pleased with the young man Jeremy was growing into. Jeremy easily maintained a 3.5 GPA, found solace in the prose of poetry, built a computer sophomore year, and hoped to obtain his pilot's, pilot's license as flying was a hobby he enjoyed with his father. During Jeremy's high school career, the Strohmeyer family relocated to Singapore for a year. Winnie, who is an executive for Western Digital, was transferred, and John left his career in real estate and slipped into the role of being the stay-at-home parent as the family navigated their new life abroad. While they had concerns their son was going to have difficulties assimilating and finding his place in their life in Singapore, it didn't take long for Jeremy to get mixed up with a crowd of expatriate dependents, so basically like the kids, mm -hmm who enjoyed pushing the envelope, partying, drinking underage, and experimenting with drugs. From time to time, the formerly straight-laced Jeremy would come home with alcohol on his breath and increasingly became verbally combative with his parents, namely Winnie, who worked a grueling schedule that kept her away from home more than not. They chalked it up to growing pains and typical teenage angst. When Winnie's time in Singapore was extended, she and John attempted to enroll, Jer to enroll Jeremy for an additional semester of school, only to be denied enrollment. They were informed that Jeremy had showed up to his final day at school stoned. Had Jeremy not intended to return to California for his first semester of his junior year that school year, the school would have already expelled him. John was perplexed at this news. He couldn't figure out how Jeremy had shown up to school high. He'd personally driven Jeremy to school and picked him up. The night before, when Jeremy came home from the end of school year party, his, his eyes had been bloodshot, but Jeremy ex had explained it was from the chlorine in the pool, which was a logical explanation to a parent afraid of the truth. I said what the fuck I said. Jeremy told John to wake him in the morning for school, and John rationalized that if his son had been impaired by drugs or alcohol, he, could he couldn't possibly be mindful enough to ask him to wake, to wake him for school. 
So now the Strohmeyers have gone back to the LBC, Long Beach, California. Back in Long Beach, John and Winnie hoped that Jeremy would get back on track. Jeremy found a mentor and a teacher named Mr. Crutchfield. The former attorney turned career guidance teacher was like a breath of fresh air to Jeremy, who was becoming increasingly combative with his parents. Jeremy knew very little about volleyball, but he tried out for JV because Crutch, as he affectionately referred to Mr. Crutchfield, was a coach. Crutch would say that Jeremy showed immense heart. Justin Ware was a sophomore who was a starter on the team, and the two became fast friends. Justin was described as a cool kid who fit in with the surfers and the jocks at school. Duality. I'm with it. The two began hanging out quite a bit, going to parties, surfing, and like double dating, so being typical teenagers. Like friends do, they planned on trips to like Mexico, let's go to Baja, and we go fishing in Baja, I'm sure. I swear, because it, like it was like the 90s. Let's go to Catalina. Yes, let's do it. Let's go down to Tijuana. I love it. I've got so many friends that would do that. You know, like, let's go. Hell yeah, I'm down. I ought to be a kid. One of the regular habits the two got into was visiting Justin's mother, Earlene, who worked at Borders Bookstore loves a bookstore during these visits jeremy enjoyed engaging in stimulating conversations with erlin about politics current events and books when the oj trial verdict of not guilty was handed down jeremy was infuriated he had already been referring to the fallen football stars legal team as the scheme team Seething, he questioned how society could allow a murderer to walk free. While Earl Lynn was taken by the smooth teenager, her husband John was apprehensive. Something about Jeremy wasn't gelling with him. It wouldn't take long for Mr. and Mrs. Ware to grow tired of Jeremy. Like, lickety-split. The two boys hadn't been hanging out together long before trouble began. First, the wares caught Justin attempting to sneak into his room with friends after curfew. <coughs> All of the boys, with the exception of Jeremy, were blitzed. They were super drunk. John noted that Jeremy seemed to be the experienced drinker in this instance. Following that incident, that incident, other incidents began to pile on. So, for my younger listeners who don't know what, like, landline phone bills and, like, long distance were really about, let me take you back. So, one month, Jeremy ran up the where phone bill with $80 of phone calls to girls that he met on an AOL chat room. Or in various chat rooms. So, there were phone companies. (laughs) Phones plugged into the wall. Your parents had, like, phone plans. 
but calling long distance wasn't like calling your friend in a different state from your cell phone today. You got charged a fee per minute. Um, there was a rate and you could rack up a super high phone bill. I am obviously guilty as fucking sin for doing that as a teenager. Sorry, not the AOL chat room stuff, but definitely racked up many a phone bill. And it's really fucked up that he did it on his friend's parents' phone. On another occasion, John overheard Jeremy regaling Justin with his sexual adventures in Singapore, stating that the young girls of Singapore would do most anything for a pack of cigarettes. John Ware was mortified and disgusted, while Earl Lynn figured it was just, like, locker room talk. You know, boys will be boys. They're just, you know, talking. He's probably just recounting something he saw on Real Sex on HBO. Mm. <laughs> June 19... She didn't say that. I said it. <laughs> June 1996, Jeremy had just completed his junior year at Woodrow Wilson High School. It was time to spend the summer partying with friends. Early into summer break, Jeremy was arrested for drunk driving. When Winnie and Jeremy drove home that night from the police station, she recalled that he flew into a complete rage, beating the window with the windows with his fist and screaming at her. Winnie was so fearful of her son that she kicked him out of her car leaving him to sleep on the beach for the night. You sleep it off, young man, and you come home when you've thought this through. I hope you have a hangover. Jeremy wasn't just given a slap on the wrist. He lost his driver's license, was ordered to attend counseling, and ordered to perform 80 hours of community service. To add salt to his wounds, the blemish of a DUI made acceptance into West Point or the Air Force Academy a faded dream, no matter the fact that he maintained a 3.5 GPA and it scored a 1360 on his SATs. The worst of it all was that losing his license meant that Jeremy couldn't mack on Agnes, a 17-year-old girl that he'd met at a party. The two were like talking over shots of Crown Royal and he was instantly a smitten kitten. Instantly. He fell in love with her. He had never met a woman like her before. She was planning to attend university in the fall in Santa Barbara and Jeremy had hoped that the summer would be theirs to spend together. While the two dated briefly, Jeremy confided in Agnes that he preferred dating women who looked young and wanted her to dress in schoolgirl outfits with pigtails. Agnes witnessed... Oh, by the way, she said, fuck no. Good girl, Agnes. But she noted that he was into some interesting stuff, for sure. Agnes also witnessed fits of rage and aggression when Jeremy didn't get his way. The biggest red flag Agnes noticed was the preoccupation that bordered on obsession. 
that Jeremy had with her. And when I say bordered, I mean, like, his toenail was, like, his toenails were scraping the opposite line. You know what I mean? The other side of the line. He was, yeah. He was almost ten toes down on the line of obsession. Okay? Like, when he wasn't contacting her via email, he was sending her love letters and poetry and calling her. Agnes felt, like, smothered. Like, listen, bro. I'm about to go to university. I can't. I'm a free bird. Okay? And this bird you cannot chain. Okay? Like, it's too much, bro. Hug a little less. I feel I feel it. I get it. I understand. I understand. And I'm glad that she was observant enough and confident enough to recognize these red flags and say fuck no immediately. Well, you know, pretty quickly. Um so she was trying to distance herself from him. And then, like, early into school, Agnes informed Jeremy that she was leaving university. That wasn't working out. And then she was going to be, like, moving to Maryland with her booski, her boyfriend, her man, a man. She was going there with a man who wasn't Jeremy. He still would not take no for an answer so now he's moonwalked across the line of like obsession and is like not letting go he is taking rick astley to heart never gonna give never gonna give just bullshit so then agnes goes and enlists in the army where she purposefully did not give jeremy her address to boot camp but somehow, Jeepers Creepers, Jeremy got his hands on her address. The next thing you know, the next thing you know, she's sitting there in the squad bay. Picture it. She's sitting there in the squad bay with all the other privates. And it's mail call. And all of a sudden, she's only gotten like, Maybe I'm hypothesizing. I'm pretending. I don't know. Pretend like she's only gotten like a couple of letters the whole time she's been there. And she's like a couple weeks into training, right? And they've been letters from like her parents. Or like a girlfriend back at home. You know, something like that. A college friend. And then they start calling her every day where she's getting these thick ass envelopes. With these long love letters from lovesick Jeremy back in Long Beach. Bitch. Okay, so. Soon Agnes was bombarded with love letters from Jeremy telling her that he loved her and he would even die for her. He hypothesized that her parents couldn't understand what she could possibly see in a person like him. During this time, while obsessing over Agnes, Jeremy also began abusing methamphetamines. Mm. The teen would spend hours in his room visiting hardcore porn websites, Hardcore Haven, 
cyber is it heaven or haven i don't remember cyber porn does it really fucking matter cyber porn nasty and erotic world jeremy would download over 800 files of mixed media i.e videos photos and stories primarily of child pornography featuring young girls and men By his 18th birthday, on October 11th, 1996, Jeremy couldn't be reasoned with, reprimanded, code. He thought he was grown and he wasn't hearing shit. He was feeling himself. I remember when I was 18, I thought I could, you couldn't tell me shit for like a smooth year and a half. Was a fucking, I wasn't a monster, but like I felt like it was like, holy shit, I can vote and I'm leaving for the military and I can buy cigarettes and I can, you know, do the handful of things I can do. You know, and I was like, they say I'm an adult. No, you're really in your fucking wonder years. Because you're still a child, kind of, and you're kind of an adult. You're in your wonder years. 18 through 20. Turn twenty one, then you're really, then you're an adult. You go on, then you're really an adult. End of my explanation. Mm. So, Jeremy liked showing off some of his downloaded content to friends of the nude amp of nude amputees and women with various objects inserted in their vaginas a la the ping pong show in thailand <clears throat> the once punctual teen was now oversleeping daily often missing his first period ap english class yo like who decided ap english had to be like first period i feel like my first <laughs> My first, my, my AP English class was like first period. And it was too damn early for Socratic seminars. But okay, that was a digression. At times exhausted from coming down from his high, he'd fall asleep at his desk. Jeremy also began neglecting his varsity volleyball responsibilities. Because he'd now moved up to varsity, y'all. I peeped that. And um, showing up to practice late or ditching them all together. Crutch would say that at this time, Jeremy was becoming desensitized and, quote, so self-centered. Oh, I felt that. That sparkly 3.5 GPA slipped to a 2.1. When Jeremy didn't get the ROTC scholarship he'd applied for, he wrote Agnes telling her he wanted to postpone informing his parents as he, quote, didn't want to hear any of their shit. As the year progressed, Jeremy began hanging out with fellow senior David Cash Jr., who was working diligently towards obtaining his degree as a chemical engineer, i.e. that was his trajectory in life. That's what he wanted to do when he grows up. While most who encountered David thought he was a pompous asshole nerd, Jeremy thought differently. David was the perfect wingman bro. He admired and looked up to Jeremy, laughed on cue at Jeremy's jokes, and didn't ridicule Jeremy for, for his obsessive crushing on Agnes. 
Another plus was David's mother allowed her son to use your convertible. Score! Especially when you've lost your license due to DUI. The two guys met in a computer class. And, you know, they helped each other out. And they actually, like, they actually probably really did enjoy each other's, like, goofball banter and company. By February 1997... Mr. Crutchfield stepped in to confront Jeremy about his attendance at school and volleyball. While he suspected Jeremy was abusing drugs, he felt it best to stick to the pressing issue of Jeremy throwing away his academic career one truancy notice after the other. Jeremy couldn't make eye contact with his favorite teacher, the same man who he'd once felt comfortable having deep, candid conversations and listening to classic rock music with. Instead, he apologized, head down, tucking his tail. The following month, Agnes had returned home and reconnected with Jeremy. One afternoon that month, Winnie came home and found the two having sex. Pissed the fuck off. And furious, of course. Winnie told Agnes to exit the Strohmeyer home immediately. Winnie felt that Jeremy intentionally had sex with Agnes at that time so Winnie could catch the two in the act, which is an assertion of him being an adult. <coughs> at least that's what I'm thinking. <clears throat> Pardon me. When Winnie finally stated that Agnes was not allowed in their home, firmly stated that Agnes was not allowed in their home again. Jeremy boldly told his mother, if I can't have Agnes in my life, I can't live here. When he told Jeremy that he was going to have to make a choice in the matter as she was not budging on her position. Enraged, Jeremy left the home and asked the wares, Justin, you know, Justin's parent, Erlin and John, that's right, if he could stay with them. Uh, So Jeremy was honest and he told Erlin that Winnie was being unfair well that part is like him being a teenager but whatever he told her that Winnie banned Agnes for catching the two having sex Erlin understanding Winnie's position also gave Jeremy sage words the headstrong teen wasn't willing to hear Erlin told Jeremy that the same rules at his family's home were you know the same in her home and the rules had never changed. They'd always applied. He was just choosing to not, you know, go with the flow. So, like, buck up, buttercup. The rules are the rules. You go to school, you know, like, hell, I remember my dad had, like, a list of rules growing up. And they were on the refrigerator, literal, from the time I was, like, probably, like, 12 maybe well not really literal for like uh, for sure like my dad always said you go to school get a job get married move out whatever the fuck you're gonna do you're gonna do it but you're gonna you know you're gonna have to do something the choice is yours but these are your op going to the military you know like you got some options but what you're not going to do is sit your rusty ass up in here. 
not without some kind of game plan or actually doing a multitude of those things on that list. So there's that. So, you know, she understood that and she was telling him, you know, that the same rules at his house were the same that they'd always been. The difference was that now that he was 18, he thought he no lo- they no longer applied to him. And he was wrong in that train of thought. Jeremy rebutted that if he was old enough basically to enlist in the military and vote, that he should basically be able to have consensual have a consensual sexual partner without being told no. Evident that Jeremy's charms wouldn't work at the wares, he went on to go couch surf at his friend Jeremy Phillips' studio apartment. So JP, because there's two Jeremys now in this, as I'm going to call him, JP was a year older than Jeremy, and the two became friends after a night of partying at the Strohmeyer house. He thought that Jeremy was pretty cool for not being upset when he drunkenly urinated all over Mr. Strohmeyer's filing cabinet. So, of course, Jeremy could crash at his studio. That's what bros are for. The Jeremys and David became a trio, hanging out after school, cruising around, and, like, being assholes, honestly. Like, harassing people who were most likely not going to report the incidents to police is some shitty shitty business the boys committed vile antics like shooting homeless men in the buttocks with bb guns and jeremy's favorite pastime dragging sex workers by their wrists from moving cars until he let which jeremy referred to as a whore dragging he had to let go you know when he chose So she had to hang on to the side of the car, mortified, as he drove alongside her. That's fucked up. When Mr. Crutchfield caught wind that Jeremy had moved out of his parents' home, he accused him of using drugs. Of course, Jeremy denied using them, but he admitted to partying a lot with his friends because bros... And so Mr. Crutchfield told Jeremy that he needed to take his ass back home and get his head back in the game. Knowing that JP was about to move away because he was about to get evicted because he could no longer. Well, I don't know what the fuck he was doing for work, but, you know, they were obviously partying hard. So paying the rent really wasn't necessarily a priority. So there's that. But, I mean, I'm not, I'm just speculating. I don't know. They said he could no longer afford the apartment, which is normally code for they were getting evicted. Um, Or the rent got hiked up. There's that, too. It was, it's L.A. I would like to be optimistic and hope that it was because the rent got hiked up. Nonetheless, Jeremy returned home. When he did, Winnie and John gave a firm list of rules. In early April, Jeremy accompanied David to tour Berkeley as he planned on attending in the fall. Uh, (laughs) While there, the two broskies got their tongues pierced and Jeremy also got his nipples pierced. On the way home, the two got into a car accident crashing David's mother's convertible. I believe Um, it was the convertible. 
The Strohmeyers flew the boys back home and hosted David at their home for the three weeks it was going to take to have his mother's car repaired, which is super cool on their part. You know, because honestly, like, as douchey as, I mean, and I say that, but he was 17. But I say that also because of some of the things that he saw, that he said later on. But, you know, David liked the Strohmeyers and the Strohmeyers liked him. And he was not necessarily a bad influence on Jeremy. He had his head on his shoulder. He had a good head on his shoulders as far as, like, being a goal setter and getter academically for sure. So, of course... They're going to host him for three weeks. So they did that. Super cool. Super cool. Um, yeah. As if wrecking in David's mom's car wasn't bad enough, though, Agnes told Jeremy she no longer wanted to have anything to do with him. Also, return my letters, please. Yes, she said it. Return my words. I don't want you pining over what I said to you when I thought I gave a shit. These are my words. This would be 18-year-old Kimberly Petty. Give me back my love letters. That is so... Yeah, that is it. That is that age group. It's so heavy. It's so deep. I wrote a lot of poetry in my teens in that in that time frame, too. Shit was dark. <laughs> Anyways, um, she told him she didn't want to have shit to do with him anymore. And then three weeks before varsity volleyball season was to end, Jeremy just up and quit the team. Deep inside his meth addiction, Jeremy would stay up for hours, sometimes days on end. When locked away in his room, he would compulsively clean, which is a telltale for sure, tinker with computers, engage in chat room conversations, read and write letters to Agnes. Unwilling to accept that Agnes no longer wanted to have anything to do with him, he showed up at her home unannounced. When her mom was like, yo, Agnes is, like, not here. In fact, she's, like, visiting her grandmother. Jeremy refused to take her at her word. And she he insisted and then pushed past her and went to Agnes's room to see for himself. Surprise, motherfucker, in my doke's not sounding voice. She wasn't there. Okay. One of his parents' stipulations on allowing him back home was that he seek counseling. By May, Jeremy began see- seeing a therapist who diagnosed him with ADD and prescribed him the amphetamine dexedrine. As a thank you for hosting David, he and his father invited Jeremy to Las Vegas for Memorial Day weekend. For my non-American listeners who have no idea what Memorial Day is, Memorial Day weekend is a big thing in North America. It's where we observe our fallen military personnel and remembrance and it is the unofficial assurance into summer so we celebrate 
Well, on this weekend, they were planning on going to Vegas. Jeremy had just begun seeing his therapist and taking his prescription one week prior to his trip. Two days prior to his trip, Jeremy entered a chat room conversation with a fellow 18-year-old who called himself Lit Lover. I can only speculate who Lit Lover was. The conversation follows as this. Oh, also, um, Jeremy went by Flyboy1030. <coughs> Lit Lover asks, do you like little girls? Flyboy1030 replied, very much so. Lit Lover says, cool, how young do you like them? Flyboy1030 responds, I've never had a chance to try anything, but I fantasize all the time. I don't know, probably about five or six. Two days later, inside a Nevada casino, Jeremy would act on those fantasies. Charisse Marche Renee Iverson was a special little girl. Born October 20th, 1989 to Leroy, Leroy Iverson and Yolanda Manuel. Her parents made December relationship was a 30-year age difference, was strained and chaotic. Loss was something this nuclear family knew all too well. Leroy, a disabled retired tour bus driver, had lost three of his five children as infants before May 25, 1997. Yolanda, a school cafeteria worker, adored her only child, Charisse. Charisse was described as a smart, happy second grader. Y'all, Charisse loved the Little Mermaid. I hope she would have loved what's coming out next year. She loved jumping rope, and her favorite color was purple. She was a beautiful child with big brown eyes that were bright and sparkled and a huge smile. When Charisse thought about what she wanted to be when she grew up, her list included being a policewoman, nurse, model, or dancer. While there were issues at home, she was very loved and protected by her parents, especially her father, who wouldn't allow his children to play outside, asserting how dangerous it was in the world. And... I believe they lived in, oh gosh, they lived in like South Central, I believe, so I can understand why he didn't want his children playing outside, given the way things were in that, in that time with gang activity and a lot of drive-by shootings and shit like that. I mean, like, listen. Yeah, I can't fault him for that. Doting on his little girl, Leroy would iron her clothes for school every morning. When he would drop her off, her braided pigtails were perfect. And he was the only father to show up 20 minutes early every day when school was dismissed. Before school was dismissed. Leroy was, while complicated, adored his children, 
and tried to keep them close at all times. Leroy was extremely protective. His oldest son, Harold, was 14 years old and his father's right hand. Whenever the three went out, especially to the casinos in Nevada, Harold was responsible for his little sister. Yes, while protective over his children, Leroy had his vices, and gambling was his. He'd load up Harold and Cherise into his white van, and the trio would cross the border so he could pony up to the slots. His children would stick together as Leroy deposited coin after coin, chasing the jackpots that never seemed to bust for him. On the, it was like the late night, May 24th, going into the wee hours of the morning of May 25th. It was like any other trip to the casinos. Leroy was unable to afford a room where his children would be safe watching basic cable and snacking on vending machine Gardettos. It was after midnight when Leroy parked his van in the parking lot of the Prima Donna Casino and Resort in Prim, Nevada. He pulled out his wallet and handed both children a $5 bill for the casino's arcade room. Restless and bored, Cherise roamed the casino, her blue and white sailor dress swishing with every step she took in her black cowboy boots. The familiar sounds of slot machines, the smell of stale beer, pall malls, and despair permeating the air, all of this was familiar, for this was her playground. She'd been to the prima donna many times. On two separate occasions, Security spoke sternly to Leroy, informing him that he needed to watch Cherise properly. Being scolded and interrupted from the slots upset Leroy, and he lashed out at Harold for not keeping Cherise under control. By 3 a.m., when Jeremy Strohmeyer and the, the Cashes, David and his father, entered the prima donna, Cherise had taken a kitten nap at the wheel of final lap as the other children who were in the arcade room milled about. Jeremy and David wandered around as David's father ponied up to the poker table. Just a few quick hands, he told the boys. David and Jeremy wandered around the casino towards the arcade room. They'd been bored and restless when they decided to urinate on two of the games in the arcade and then bullseye with the electri- and then play bullseye with the electrical sockets. Bladders empty now, and taking in the crowd of miners, Jeremy honed in on a 16-year-old girl and struck up a conversation. Jeremy peacocked and boasted, showing off his nipple and tongue rings, as well as his fake ID. Yo, girl, I totally bought some booze at the bar. He told her he was from Long Beach, along with his friend David, and that he was graduating that year. While Jeremy tried to exchange contact information with the girl, she felt uneasy and lied about where she was from and totally did not give up her digits. Good girl. 
As the girl tried to wiggle out of the off-putting conversation with Jeremy, a wad of wet paper towel sailed through the air, landing on him. The girl used that as an opportunity to get out of his crosshairs, as his attention was now on two small children, a boy and a girl throwing wet paper towels at one another playfully. Jeremy picked up the wad that hit him and threw it at Sharice. For approximately 11 minutes, surveillance cameras showed Jeremy and Sharice engaging in a spirited game of hide-and-seek. Jeremy told Sharice the women's bathroom was the only place he wouldn't be able to go into, so she'd be safe there. The two were seen darting and zigging and zigzagging through the arcade when at 3.47 a.m. Cherie slipped into the ladies' room. Watching her like a hawk, Jeremy saw that Cherie had gone in to hide. As Harold chatted with the girl who Jeremy originally sparked up a conversation with, Jeremy sipped from the water fountain before taking a final drag from his cigarette burning in his hand as he advanced towards the ladies' room. David, who was hanging back, watched as Charisse and then Jeremy entered the ladies' room and began to follow. When Jeremy opened the bathroom door, Sharice began pelting Jeremy with more wet paper towels from across the bathroom. As he advanced towards her, he was surprised at the wet floor sign the cunning seven-year-old threw at him. The sign striking Jeremy's arm and enraged him. David stood inside the bathroom watching as Jeremy hoisted Sharice with one arm between her legs and muzzled her mouth with the other. Sharice bucked and wiggled, and trying to escape his grasp as Jeremy took her into the handicapped stall and locked the door. As Sharice let out muffled cries in the handicapped stall, David went into the adjacent stall, boosting himself up to see what was happening in Jeremy's stall. David said that when he looked over, Jeremy told Sharice to shut up or he'd kill her. David said he tapped Jeremy on the top of his head, knocking his UC Berkeley cap to the floor. That's when David said that the look on Jeremy's face indicated that he was not going to stop whatever he was going to do. This is when David walked out of the restroom and returned to the arcade to wait for Jeremy. Alone in the restroom, trigger warnings is super fucked up, and now, dumpster juice alert. I'm so sad. It's first of all like one, it, it's, it's late, but dumpster juice alert, here we go. Okay. Alone in the restroom, Jeremy took off Sharice's boots and underwear and proceeded to molest her with his fingers. Sharice screamed as Jeremy abused her, so he choked her. 
when two women came into the restroom as the assault was still happening. Jeremy sat on Sharice's stomach with her legs behind his as a way to conceal the two being in the stall together. When the women left the restroom, Jeremy looked at Sharice's crumpled body. Her breathing was labored and she twitched. Jeremy assumed that Sharice was brain dead and thought it was cruel for the seven-year-old to live in a life in a vegetative state. That was when Jeremy twisted the child's neck until it finally snapped. Jeremy quickly threw Sharice's boots and panties into the toilet, then placed her in the toilet feet first, wrapping her limp arms over her legs. After wiping off the foam and blood that dribbled onto his arm, Jeremy tossed the used toilet paper into the stall with Sharice and closed the stall as he exited. In all, Jeremy spent 24 minutes inside the women's restroom. David had been waiting on a concrete bench when Jeremy reemerged. He told Jeremy his father was waiting for them. It was time to go. As they left the casino, David asked Jeremy what happened, and Jeremy openly admitted to killing Sharice. Before piling into the car, oddly, David asked if Sharice had been sexually aroused. And I am happy to say, in all of my research, I did not look for that answer. Um, and I don't have, I'm glad that I don't have the answer to that sick fucking question. As the trio of men put miles between themselves and the prima donna, it wasn't until 5 a.m. that the body of Sharice Iverson was discovered. Quickly, officials worked to find the killer of the little girl. After scanning hours of surveillance, police were sure they had found their, sus their suspect or suspects exiting the casino shortly after 4 a.m. Meanwhile, Jeremy, David, and his father continued enjoying their Vegas weekend. Before Jeremy was dropped off at his home at 3 a.m., he and David basically decided to get their stories in line just in case what had happened in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas, so to speak. The two decided to say simply that they played hide-and-seek with Sharice when she locked herself into the handicapped stall, they left. Sweet and simple. By Tuesday, the surveillance tapes were on all of the news stations. David, like, had opted to not go to school the next day because, like, he got home at 3 a.m. or, like, after 3 or whatever. So, he's sitting at home. And he's like, I'm going to watch Jerry Springer. I can just see this shit. And he's channel surfing. And he goes past the local news. And there he sees the surveillance tapes. So David immediately drives to Jeremy's house. And the two sit there and watch their faces. 
And as they're doing this, David lamented that they were going to be easily identified. Everyone knew that the two had been in Las Vegas, and both of their looks were undeniable to those who knew them. Unable to keep their shit under their lids, basically. You know what I mean? Like, I said it. Like, the boys then decided to, like, confide in a couple of friends, omitting the sexual assault part, though. Okay? And then the following day, they go to school. And there are whispers in the hallway. And, you know, it just, it just... It just looked a whole fucking lot like Jeremy. Because Jeremy's been showing off his damn nipple piercings and sticking out his tongue. And David's been like, what up? And Jeremy's all like, what up? And they're all like, Budweiser, nipples. Yeah, like, oh, God, 1997. Yeah. And so they're like, that's them. But they're whispering. But they can't quite, you know put their fingers on it there was so much disbelief though amongst many who were like watching the news broadcast as the boys sat through their classes they feared that they were going to be arrested at school when nothing happened to the two during the school day they parted ways so jeremy (coughs) feeling trapped like a rat first gets a hold of Agnes and he's like hey girl hey I gotta see you so they go to Jamba Juice they meet up or someplace I I swear I think it said Jamba Juice and I was like that's a good place to confess what you did and he's telling Agnes what had happened and at first she doesn't believe him but then like she sees it on the news when she goes home and she calls him back and he's like yeah and like I gotta leave I gotta skip town and she's like the fuck you do so she calls her dad keep in mind David Ware never said uh Justin Ware knew he said he couldn't tell uh Jeremy Phillips when he found out from David what had happened he told David to turn Jeremy in but there was a code of like weird silence there was another friend that they confided in and he didn't believe him so I mean like there was a lot of like this couldn't possibly be happening but When he told Agnes and she saw him on the news, she called her dad. Her dad informed the police. And that's when undercover detectives decided to go sit on the Strohmeyer house. Winnie and Heather left the home. Jeremy comes home. And he decides that he is going to inevitably be caught and so he swallows nearly 40 of his prescribed dexedrine pills and scribbled a note to his mother vaguely apologizing 
for an unstated sin and begging for death to like take him and also for forgiveness for again an unstated sin he never said what he did in his letter when his mother and his sister returned home jeremy attempted to run away by slipping out from the side of the house and that's when he was immediately apprehended by undercover detectives who were watching the Strohmeyer home. When Winnie and Heather entered the home, everything was off. Quickly, Winnie discovered the suicide note and the empty bottle. And as she was frantically searching their residence for Jeremy, he was outside being arrested, like up the street or whatever. Because he took off and they caught him quickly. So... Almost immediately, officers appeared at the front door, like moments later, and she informs them that Jeremy had taken a bottle of Dexedrine, and she knew how many pills were in the bottle because she had counted them to make sure that he was taking his meds. The teen was immediately taken to the hospital, and while under observation, Jeremy calmly confessed to the murder of Sharice Iverson. Detective sat in silence as he graphically detailed the molestation and murder of Sharice. When he was finished with his confession, Jeremy was asked why he committed the heinous crime. Jeremy stated that he wanted to, quote, see what death was like. He had never been that close to it. Upon release from the hospital, Jeremy confessed twice more at the police station on tape without legal consult being present. He had waived his rights. <coughs> when Jeremy's computer was seized and analyzed, his treasure trove of pornographic materials were discovered, as well as in his internet correspondence. The Strohmeyers hired high-profile attorney Leslie uh, Abramson, Abrahamson, Abramson, who also represented Eric and Lyle Melendez. The defense's strategy was to focus on how inebriated and mentally impaired Jeremy was that morning at the Prima Donna Casino, noting the excessive usage of meth and alcohol, as well as Jeremy's predisposition to addiction leaning heavily on the information counsel and the Strohmeyers learned about Jeremy's biological parents, information until the murder that had been kept from the Strohmeyers. Counsel basically said, um, had the Strohmeyers known of Jeremy's parents' issues with substance abuse, Jeremy would never have begun experimenting with drugs leading to a six-month meth addiction. The defense even went so far as to question whether or not Jeremy was even Sharice's murderer. They suggested that perhaps David Cash wasn't a witness, but instead the perp, since Jeremy had no memory of the morning in the bathroom stall with Sharice, and all he could go by was what David told him. With their strategy formalized, the defense team was ready to go to trial, which was set for September 1998. Jeremy potentially faced a death sentence if found guilty. 
So, mere hours before the trial was set to begin, Jeremy's attorney entered a plea bargain on his behalf. Jeremy pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, sexual assault on a minor with substantial bodily harm, and sexual assault on a minor. Six days before what would have been Sharice's ninth birthday, October 14, 1998, Jeremy was sentenced to four life sentences to run consecutively without the possibility of parole. All of Jeremy's appeals have been denied because, of course, although in his statement he acknowledged that he understood that he needed to go away for good the reality of life in prison without the possibility of parole didn't sit well in his spirit so of course he appealed but they were shot down in 1999 his parents filed a one million dollar lawsuit against la county asserting that the social workers who, the social worker who handled Jeremy's adoption initially withheld his biological history so he would be adopted by the family. While they support and stand behind their son, they felt deceived. Ultimately, though, in 2002, the case and its subsequent appeal were dismissed on the grounds of statute of limitation. Now, this is coming direct from Wikipedia. Quote, Sharice Iverson's murder led to the passage of Nevada State Assembly Bill 267, requiring people to report to authorities when they have reasonable suspicions that a child younger than 18 is being sexually abused or violently treated. The impetus for the bill stemmed from David Cash's inaction during the commission of this crime. The Sharice Iverson bill introduced by Nevada State Assembly Majority Leader Richard Perkins provides for a fine and possible jail time for anyone who fails to report a crime of this of the nature that led to the creation of the bill. And the bill was enacted in 2000. Sharice Iverson's murder also led to the passage of California Assembly Bill 1422, the Sharice Iverson Child Victim Protection Act, which added Section 152, TAC 3, the, Ch the California Penal Code. The duty to rescue law requires that a person notify law enforcement if they witness a murder, rape, or any lewd or lascivious act where the victim is under 14 years old. In 2000, Leroy Iverson, Sharice's fa father, passed away after years of health issues. And may I also say, a broken heart, having lost four of his five children, all very young. He is survived by his son Harold. 
Yolanda, Sharice's mother, crusaded for the bills that were passed. She also really wanted David Cash to be held accountable in the court of law <coughs> for his inaction during the crimes that Jeremy facilitated towards her child and um with that that obviously never came to be but the bills you know the the, the Nevada and California making these bills she crusaded for that and she never recovered from the loss of her daughter like you can't get her for an interview now David Cash while guilty in the court of public opinion for failing to report Jeremy's misconduct and subsequent admission of murder was never found guilty of any crimes and was never charged with anything. Let's be perfectly clear. David Cash Jr. was very innocent as in the he didn't actually do anything to Sharice. But everyone who caught wind of this story, a lot of people disagreed with his lack of empathy. They questioned his moral compass. And also, he went on to do some deplorable press segments and interviews, like right before school, where he asserted continuously that he didn't know Cherise. So he didn't really feel bad or guilty. He backed his bro. And despite many protests and pleas. Um, that he leave you Cal Berkeley. Because he was basically a. He was basically a fucking pariah at this point. Right. Amongst his peers. He said you know what. I'm not going to let a stellar education go to waste. And I'm not going anywhere. And so he did graduate and he became a chemical engineer. Jeremy went on to marry a woman he corresponded with through a pen pal system. Um, and he is still incarcerated. Um, and while I think that that's great that he was able to find love, I think that it's really fucked up because Sharice would be gearing up to turn 33 and although he his life his life ended at 18 when he murdered Sharice and had to serve time her life ended at 7 and he was still able to continue on living and be able to correspond with people and find love. His wife says she's a normal person. She puts her pants on like everybody else does. Her husband is not a monster. She likes to drink her wine, you know, to to unwind from time to time. She goes to work. 
She pays her taxes. She loves her husband. End of story. So, what had happened is this. Let's speak on it. What had happened is this, is that there were a lot of fingers pointed in a lot of directions because there were a lot of sources of blame. People pointed fingers at Leroy Iverson because what kind of a parent would take his children to the casinos in the wee hours of the morning? Leroy Iverson felt that the atmosphere of the casinos was safer than the landscape that he was raising his children in in South Central Los Angeles. They provided a sense of glitz and hope. And also they provided faux safety because they had rooms that he could if he had money get for his children and as well as arcade rooms and facilities for children which to him was kind of like him going to taking the kids on a vacation like a resort or something where he could gamble and this is literally what I read like you know this is how he perceived taking the children and he also felt like he was responsible because he took hair and when I say responsible he was being a responsible parent because he took Harold along to look over you know look look you know to watch Sharice um Yolanda was not present for this trip to the casino because the two had recently broken up and she was not staying in the home. Um, Obviously, let's go to Jeremy. Obviously, Jeremy is the person who committed the offenses. Period. Now, Mr. What Had Happened and I discussed nature versus nurture on this one. When I was like, yo, the adopted parents are like, they sued the county because they said that they didn't, they were, they were basically hoodwinked. And this is what his biological DNA was really comprised of. And yes, DNA plays a factor in some portions of our behavior, but that was that was their child. That was their son. You know what I mean? They raised him. They brought him up. He didn't know shit about his biological background. All he knew was that he was adopted. And with that, he did have his issues that most people who are adopted have to wrangle with. And that's completely natural to 
want to find your birth parent, to want to know about your birth parent. But he didn't know about his birth parents. So I think it's kind of fucked up to be like really throwing the biology under the bus when they didn't have anything to do with him at all. They didn't, we didn't find out this information until after the murder. What does that have to do with this? Any way you cut it, what, if I'm hearing that right, they were basically saying he was gonna, he was doomed. And that's jacked. It's jacked up. Well, if he knew, if we knew what the history was, he absolutely wouldn't have gone down that road. That very well could be true as well. But the fact remains, prior to knowing that there was substance abuse, he well, he liked to party. And he fell into it. Now, what if his biological parents didn't have substance abuse issues? And they just had psychological issues? You know, are we going to blame... You know, whatever that's that's it's, it's a bit of a stretch i feel like i feel like at that point it's just passing on more blame and, and a lack of culpability and realistically a lack of a lack of empathy towards the victim and her family um which goes into also the things that David Cash said in interviews, which I have a little highlight reel. Let's see here. I have a quick highlight reel, and then I'm going to wrap this shit up. Because here's the thing. Jeremy, we'll go back to him real quick. Jeremy had an obsession with women who looked younger he liked the schoolgirl role play look. And this was before Britney. I feel like this was right before we were hitting it, baby, one more time and oopsing and doing it again and all of that. Um, I think this was, this might have been right around that time. Definitely clueless for sure. So yeah, okay. Cher Horowitz in the little plaid skirts. Okay, alright. Whatever. He was into what he was into. And it was disturbing to say the least. And he knew it was dark. And he never talked about it. He talked about the other smutty stuff he was into. Well, actually, he did talk about it because he had the chat conversations, which in a later conversation, which in a, an interview that I heard, it was that it's going to be linked inside of the uh, inside of my references. They the question was brought to David whether or not he had made some inappropriate um comments in a chat conversation with Jeremy and so that's why I was saying I wonder who Lit Lover is I, I wonder if they're implying that Lit Lover was David it's never said all it says is an 18 year old male but 
he had told people, you know, he definitely confided a lot of stuff with Agnes. Agnes knew, and she knew it was a red flag. He honed in on a 16-year-old girl before, unfortunately, crossing paths with Charisse. And she was, I'm sure, when he saw her, in that little sailor outfit with those cowboy boots and those pigtails. It, that was it. And then he played cat and mouse and he lured her. He gained her trust. He got her secluded. He got her away from her brother out of earshot of anybody where he could do what he wanted to do what he had admitted to lit lover to wanting to do having thoughts and fantasies about doing and she also hit the age target so there's that so he did what he did because he fucking wanted to period end of story i understand that he was on substances but he did what he did and he knew what the hell he was doing you can't tell me otherwise you can't tell me he didn't know right from wrong um now the other factor is this this case brought up a huge a huge uh god it showed how you know we always were taught if you see something say something how this culture of not wanting to snitch and you know keeping things under wraps how deep this really is because a lot of, of a few people knew and i got the quotes so let's go first to david and this is the interview with the la times they ask why did you ask if the little girl was aroused david said i don't know I just think that way. I, it's just the way I think. I'm sorry. I don't quote. I don't know. It's just the way I think. Did you ask why he killed her? He said, quote, I never asked him why. He never explained. I didn't see how there could be an explanation. They asked, were you appalled that a friend said he killed a little girl? He said, quote, I'm not going to get upset over somebody else's life. I just worry about myself first. I'm not going to lose sleep over somebody else's problems. When asked, why didn't you turn Jeremy over to the police? He said, quote, I didn't want to be the person to take a, who takes away his last day, his last night of freedom. So that was the mindset. That was the mindset. Nobody wanted to be the one to say anything. Um, when the Long Beach police asked uh, David Cash, did you think about the safety of the little girl? David Cash said, quote, um, I'm sure I thought, you know, what would happen to her? What is he going to do to her? Um, I mean, she was being, you know, restrained against her will. 
they asked, didn't you think that was something you should go and report right away? He said, quote, um, I probably should have, but I still, I didn't, you know, at that point I couldn't fathom Jeremy, you know, giving physical harm. They said that evening, did Jeremy make any mention in regard to her appearance or sexuality or anything about her? And he said, quote, well, nothing serious. I mean, we always joke around. I mean, like, you know, those little girls, you know, yummy, this, this and that. But it's always in a joking manner. As I said before, when David asked if uh, Jeremy Phillips had seen the news, JP told David, you know, you need to turn him in. David said he couldn't. You know, like, it was self-preservation for him. And I, I mean, I understand that too, because he technically didn't do anything wrong. And it does look bad when they're pointing the finger at you. However, you still have a responsibility. When the LA Times spoke with Jeremy Phillips, they asked why did he think that David ignored his advice. And Jeremy said, quote, Jeremy Phillips said, quote, it's a man thing. If your friend does something really bad or really wrong, you're not going to go out and narc on them real quick. And they asked, why didn't you call the police and turn him in? And he said, quote, because I didn't want to get David in Dave in trouble. I was waiting for Dave to do it. For men, it's like a respect for your male friends. It's like almost an oath, a pact that you take when you become best friends with a guy. I've talked with a lot of guys about it, what they would do if their best friend killed somebody. Every guy I've asked has said they wouldn't say anything. And also, uh, you know, when Justin Ware's mom saw it on the news, off the bat she said, Jeremy's on TV. And although he suspected it was him, because, yeah, it all added up, he was like, what? And his response was, right, mom, like, my best friend is a murderer. And when he called Jeremy, Jeremy denied it. But the next day, he admitted it. And he still didn't say shit. You know, he said he was totally speechless. And he was blank. You know, so basically there was a culture. There was a culture of just bro-coding and wanting to stick together and just like horse blinders basically it's not my problem i didn't do it it wasn't me plausible deniability it, you know um and so that's what's disconcert you know that's what hurts my feelings about that Whew. so yeah listen I believe that the appropriate wait Sharice's mother wanted most likely for 
the young man to, you know, meet the same type of ending as her daughter, for sure. But she uh, instead has him incarcerated for the rest of his life. And for that, we society as a society should be grateful because I feel like had he not been caught, this would have been the first of many. And that's scary as shit. So. That was a doozy. I think I talked to like almost two hours. I gave it to you. Talk amongst yourselves, guys. Um, I don't know what else to say. There's there's so many things that are wrong about this um, in every regard. And I just can't defend. I couldn't be the friend pretending like I didn't know and staying quiet if... I'm sorry, guys. You do something this deplorable, I can't back that. I, I have a moral compass. So there's that. Well, that's it, guys. I'll be back very soon with another episode. I thank you so very much for being so patient, holding out through the summer, and coming back with me strong with this very long, very special What Had Happened, a true crime podcast episode. Good night, everybody.